listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Alanis Morissette released the song, Ironic. It was filled with not a lot of irony, but maybe that's the point. But it had a lot of a series of unfortunate things that she listed off and would sing about. Um, Things like having 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife, having uh, rain on your wedding day, or the most tragic, a 98-year-old man who wins the lottery and dies the next day. Um, The song was detrimental to the definition of the word irony, because these are all just unfortunate things that happen in life. But it did spark something, I think, in me and maybe a generation um, to think about the little bitty things in our lives that tend to send us spiraling. I described it in first service as like one of those twisty slides at the playground where you start at the beginning. And if you try to stop, you're probably not going to or someone's going to slam into the back of you. Right. Like once you get going, you just spiral. Sometimes little inconveniences send us into a downward spiral. I was on day three of my 10-week sabbatical, and four of my good friends and I embarked on a journey that we had planned for over a year. We called it C90. It was five day, six days, five nights, a 90-mile trip on Missouri's Current River. If you've ever been to the Current River, it's beautiful, one of my favorite places in the world, or so it was. We planned for months. We bought all of the gear. We drove our wives absolutely insane with the details. And yes, even maps. It's a river. It's been there for thousands of years. You don't really need a map. It goes the same place every day. And uh, we had maps. We had everything drawn out. Everything was ready to go. I talked my parents into dropping us off and picking us up so we didn't have to pay someone else. That's right. I'm 42 years old and I still ask my, wait, I'm 41 years old. Sorry. But uh, still asking my mom for favors. But uh, we had it all figured out. We started just just downriver from a place called Montauk. Some of you may recognize that if you, if you trout fish any. Um, but we unloaded the boats, we strapped down all the gear, and my parents snapped a photo, you know, the obligatory photo that says, this is to identify the bodies in case something happens, right? Y'all have been to Silver Dollar City, like, that's, that's what they say before you go in the cave, like, everybody smile, and we were smiling. It was beautiful, 65 degrees, the water was cold and swift, it was perfect. We floated about five miles on the first afternoon before we found this perfect campsite just across from a bluff. It was going to be amazing. We made dinner. We all got in our, you got our tents all set up. We slept soundly the first night. The next morning we got up, we made breakfast, we loaded our kayaks. We set out on the river a little bit before nine o'clock in the morning. Um, If you ask other people about the trip, they'll say that I was a little bit farther behind, but I was enjoying my breakfast. Um, But... We needed to make about 20 miles on the river that day to make it to our next stop so that we weren't, you know, behind when we got towards the end. We were averaging about 20 miles a day. At about 9.45, it started to sprinkle. At about 10 o'clock, it started to rain. And by 10.15, 10.30, we realized this was not a rain that was going to just pass by quickly, but it was going to rain for the remainder of the day. So we continued in the rain till about 4.30 in the afternoon. And uh, 
at that point, we started to realize that the rain gear that we had brought wasn't like full day rain gear, right? Stuff had started to seep in places you didn't want water to seep. And also the new bag that I had bought that was weather resistant was not waterproof. So all of my clothes for the next four to five days were wet. We stopped at this, uh, at this place, some of you may recognize, called uh, Acres Ferry. And we stopped there. We actually needed to go a little farther that day, but we found that we had a little bit of, of cell phone service. We could check the weather and all that sort of stuff. The weather forecast was not good. Um, the rain that we had just been through was just the start of a band of storms that was going to come through. So we had a choice. We could get off the river then, or we could get back on for another five or six miles, which the day had kind of cleared up. It was looking beautiful. But what we knew was coming that night was a thunderstorm, likely flash flooding, all of that sort of stuff. So we thought we would just cut our losses. We'd get off the river at that point. So I did what every 40 year old man does. I called my mom and uh, she came and rescued us. But I'll never forget riding back home in the back seat of the truck. I was going to my home, not mom's house. Actually, we did go to my mom's house first, but that's another story. Um, thanks mom. Uh, I remember sitting in the back of the truck, pouting to myself on how we had failed. I mean, I mean, I realize it's just a trip, but we came 75 miles short of our goal. <laughs> like, that's not even close. That's not even to say, oh, we were so close to the end. Like, no, we backed out so fast. Um, and then I started to spiral. I started down the twisty slide. I was thinking, of course, this is my first sabbatical, the first week of my sabbatical. I tried to do something restful. I'm disappointed. I'm dejected. And I'm usually Mr. Brightside, right? I'm usually like optimist, can frame everything in a way that's like, no, this is good. This is for the betterment of my character. But I was like a couple raindrops away from quoting the Psalms of Lament. I'm like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you know me, I'm a pretty positive person. But, but there's this other side to me that, that spirals. It's cynicism, negativity, victim mentality, my overall woe is me mentality. That was, that was coming from somewhere. This isn't the first time I'd felt it. It's not the, the last time I would feel it during my sabbatical. When bad things happen, I start to spiral and I can only see bad things coming. And I'm thinking, this is the way the rest of the day is going to go. The week is going to go. The 10 weeks of sabbatical, I'm just not going to get this plane off the ground. I get overwhelmed by grief I feel pressure to fix things, or I think that I've done something wrong and I'm being punished. I hide in my shame and I feel guilty for even feeling any of those feelings. Because I know that like, that's not good to spiral in those ways. It's a vicious, a vicious cycle. And then I look back on it now and I think it's just a little bit of rain. It was just a little bit of rain. So going through some counseling and that through my, not just for the float trip thing. I was like, that didn't, <laughs> didn't send me to counseling for that. But, uh, but just thinking, where are those feelings coming from? But going to counseling, I realized there's actually a clinical term for this. And it's um, when the spiral starts to happen or when things start, you just can't think anything but negative. It's called a cognitive bias. Check out this definition. I don't understand it either. You don't have to. Systematic cognitive dispositions or inclinations in human thinking and reasoning that, don't of, that often do not comply with the tenets of logic, probability, reasoning, and plausibility. And that came from an encyclopedia of neuroscience. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to understand half of those words in there. So then I went searching. I need a picture. I'm a picture guy, right? Give me a picture. This is the picture of all of the cognitive biases that you could possibly have. That's helpful, right? 
Does that send anybody else spiraling? There's a few cognitive biases that, I, that I've heard of before, like confirmation bias, where you hear a news story or you read something and you only see the things that you already agree with, right? You know what confirmation bias is, right? But then I'm looking around this thing and I'm like, there's so many, like my brain is not holding all of those things. There's no possible way. Like, but these are cognitive biases. Let me give you just a few um, widely, you know, oh, oh, let me give you, <laughs> after this, I had to make up my own, my own definition, okay? Because that's what I do sometimes. So here's my definition. I hope this is accurate. Mental shortcuts used to process information or experiences that tend to confirm what we already know or experience. There are ways that our brain connect thing, that connect things. When things happen to us, they're like, oh, this has happened before. So I know how to respond to this. So our brain just, Wayne talked a little bit last week about neuropathways. We start to get into these ruts or routes of things. And we're like, I know how to deal with this. It's like when you learn your multiplication tables, you're like, I've already got this one down. So you just go through quickly. Your brain can make that connection. Well, these aren't always good things. Here's some examples. Maybe you fall into some of these. All or nothing thinking. When you engage in all or nothing thinking, you're, you're thinking that there's only two possible outcomes to every situation. It's either incredible or terrible. Maybe, maybe that's you. Have you ever thought like that? Like, this is going to be amazing or it's going to be the worst thing ever. It can't be anywhere in between. That's all or nothing thinking. What about overgeneralization? This happens when you take information from one situation and you apply it to every situation after that in the future, assuming that it's going to go the same way. To be like, oh, I've been down this river before. See, that was my problem on the river. I hate to keep coming back to that. But like just a few months earlier, I had been on the same river with a group of college students and the same thing had happened. So I was not in a good mental space sitting there with rain dropping on me, right? Like you can imagine. So it's overgeneralization. Every time I step foot on the current river, it's going to rain. I'm sorry. That's just the way it's going to be. Uh, maybe you do this mind reading. This is often found in those with social anxiety or something like that. It involves making assumptions about people and what they're thinking. Usually negative things, especially, uh, or maybe you may be like a narcissist. If you think the other way, you like, you think everybody's just thinking positive things about you, but especially with little or no evidence, you can look across the room and you go, I know what they're thinking about me. Like, Like, I know what they thought when I walked into the room, or I know what they thought when I said that. I saw them nod their head, or I saw them roll their eyes. I saw them doze off during my sermon. (laughs) Mind reading. I'm there. Or there's mental filtering. Uh, This distortion is about what you notice most or fixate on in a situation. When engaging in negative mental filtering, you might focus only on the bad elements of something and completely disregard the good. All you can see is the bad things that come out of this. Something bad happened to me. I'm a bad person. It's only going to get worse. The twisty slide just continues on. You see, we train our brain to take these shortcuts and allow them to streamline our response. And you can probably see how there's, this is a problem, right? See, these are shortcuts that create an alternate reality because you are not what's happening to you last week. You're what's happening to you now. These shortcuts, we think that because this happened, it's always going to happen. What I've been addicted to, I will always be addicted to. What I've failed at in the past, I will always fail at. One of my favorite authors, A.J. Swoboda, says it this way, we become the tapes that we most often play about ourselves. Now, if you were alive in 1996, you know what a tape is. But if not... Just say CD or MP3 or whatever, you know, fill in the blanks of whatever. We become the things that we play the most about ourselves. We're telling ourselves in our brain, oh, I've been down this road before. 
Uh, In taking this shortcut, we leave out a bunch of information. You're not reacting to what's actually happening to you, but what has happened to you before. Oh, he was a jerk, so therefore all men are jerks. Or she was a liar, turns into that all women can't be trusted because they're liars. My parents didn't show me affection, turns into my mom did show me affection. She, She rescued me on the river. So, but that turns into I'm not worthy of affection. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. That church manipulated and abused me turns into all churches do is manipulate and abuse people. We see we play these old tapes over and over again. We make assumptions and we paint our own version of reality that is not real. And so you can see how the enemy could use this. We've been in this series, Live No Lies, and the enemy wants you to be there. Satan wants you to say, here we go again. I've been down this road. I've been judged in this way. I've been treated this way. I've been eye-rolled in this way. I've been not respected in this way. To make quick judgments of people based on your past. To look at circumstances in the most bleak way possible. To have a fatalistic view of your purpose and your future. Satan wants to use that. He wants you to spiral. He wants you to bottom out. Now, there's a few practices that professionals will give you to help identify and work through some of these, these biases. I said in, I said in counseling during my 10-week uh, my sabbatical and was just like, like this, this is the process I need to go through. One of those is, um, is reframing. Reframing. This helped me get through my little float trip hissy fit. It's called reframing. Here's what reframing is. The process of shifting your perspective by replacing negative or flawed thought patterns with more realistic ones, with more realistic reality. You see, reframing is seeing your life through an unfiltered reality. And sometimes that's really shocking to us when we remove all of the barriers and all the things that we are judging or prejudging and all of that, and we see reality for what it really is. That can be a shocking thing to see your life and your faith in perspective and to live with truth, not the lies that the enemy has told you or that your flesh has told you or that the world is pressing in on you with. See, reframing doesn't change your circumstances, but it helps you see the bigger picture. See, what reframing is is just that. It's, It's right there in the name. Imagine you had a massive canvas that could fill up this whole back wall. And it was this beautiful painting, this tapestry, tapestry that you wanted everyone to see. This, this, this beautiful thing. Oh, I just about choked. Them. <laughs> and, and, and then you go down to Walmart and you're like, I got to get a frame for this tapestry that's like, you know, massive. And you go in and you buy an eight by 10 frame. And then you come and you push it up on this tapestry. And you can see eight by 10 of that tapestry. And that's what we're going to focus on. That's what we do when, when, when God is painting this huge picture, this beautiful picture of his world and the people in it and his church and what it's doing. And we're sitting here with eight, eight by 10 in front of us. That's all we can see. See, reframing is removing the old too small frame and putting your circumstances, your feelings, your life in the appropriate perspective. Appropriate perspective. It's reframing. Now, this isn't just a cognitive thing. This is also a spiritual thing. What we've seen in this series is that, that even the things that, that the devil wants to play with your mind and then pull you away from your God. And so reframing, we're removing these old things. So I want you to, I want you to get your Bibles, whether you've got a device or a Bible, turn it, turn it to Philippians chapter 1. 
Philippians chapter 1. And I want to make the case this morning that whatever you think about Philippians, uh, maybe for you it's a, it's a joyous book. Maybe for you it's like a guy who's just way too happy. And it's just like rejoice in the Lord always. No thanks, Paul. Like that's not my jam. But I want to make a case to you this morning that, that Philippians is Paul's reframing manifesto. Paul's not a neuroscientist. We know that. He's not a psychologist. But I think he's practicing this principle in his spirit. And so he didn't even have Wikipedia to pretend like he knew any of these things. Like Paul writes Philippians in prison. Hey, we can't forget that. He's in prison. Well, it wasn't his first time in prison. He was a, he was a repeat offender, if you want to call him that. So he, he's, he's likely not going to be his last time in prison. He was in Rome awaiting his trial before Caesar. He writes to the church of Philippi, one of the first churches that he established in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is what we call like modern day Greece. Some of you may have been there on some trips, vacation, that sort of thing. But he writes the Philippian church to commend them on their faith and to thank them for their generosity. They had been like supporting him as a missionary as he's gone all over the place. And now he ends up here in prison. Paul has been through a lot, yet the, the, the book of Philippians could be destri- described as the happiest book in the Bible. And you wonder why. Like, if you look at what has happened to Paul throughout his, his life, you're like, he's full of joy and perspective. And the answer is, he's reframing. Look at verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. One thing you need to know about Paul is that his life is not about, his life is not about, you know, being comfortable. His life is not about uh, staying out of prison, obviously, because he's doing that a lot. But Paul's one goal in life was to share the gospel, was to share the good news with the entire world. And so I want to pause here for a second, because I think it's pretty easy to skip over all of the things that Paul has been hindered in his one goal. And the one thing that he wanted to do, it seemed like every turn, he runs into an obstacle. And he writes to the, to the Corinthian church. He says in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, look at what he says here. He kind of gives his, his old tapes. He says, five times I've received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I spent night and day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers. Hey, rivers, I feel like he sees me. Like we're in the same boat here, Paul. But then we read on. Dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. And that sounds like a bunch of old tapes, but in context of that scripture, Paul is actually saying, I could boast more than any of you with how much we've been persecuted. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> That's what he's doing there. But, but we see a list of all of the things. Now, how on earth can all of that happen to you in one lifetime? And you still write something like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the answer is simple. It sounds simple, but it's, it's simple for Paul. The gospel reframes everything. The gospel for Paul reframes everything. Paul's commitment to Christ, his love and pursuit of Jesus caused him to reframe everything. It was his cause for living. He would write to the Philippian church that to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you said something like that today out loud, like if you were just like, I don't really know if I want to go on living because heaven sounds pretty good. You'd be like, whoa, whoa. 
take it easy, man. Like, like that's, that's, but that's what he's saying there. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to stick around because you guys need me to continue to write these letters and I need to encourage the church and that. But he's saying, I'd rather just bounce. Like I'd rather just be in heaven with Jesus. That is a gain for me from that day that the Lord called Paul on the road to Damascus, changed his name from Saul to Paul. His life had one purpose and it was the purpose of Christ. It's as the Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. If you have a big enough why to live for, you can bear almost any how. You can go through three shipwrecks. And at that point, I'm like, I'm not getting on a third ship, Paul, right? Three shipwrecks? People are throwing rocks at you, not like for you to catch them, right? Paul, what are you, what are you doing here? And so Paul doesn't reframe his circumstances and say, no, that never happened or, you know, it's all good, everything's fine. He doesn't reframe his circumstances to whitewash what has happened to him or to bury it in positive thinking. No, he reframes to see a clearer, bigger picture of what God is doing while he's inconvenienced. He has a bigger why than most of us. If you jump over to Philippians 4, just turn a couple more pages. Paul is going to give us a guide to reframing our thoughts, our emotions, and our circumstances. Like I said, this book is not just the power of positive thinking, which was a Christian book. I didn't know if you knew that. I I researched a little bit. But this is not just the power of positive thinking. This is Paul reframing everything that has happened in his life. How do we deal with the negativity and intrusive thoughts? How do we live without lies and live in an unfiltered reality? We reframe it with the gospel. Here's the first thing that he tells them in chapter four. He says, good news will change your prayer life. Good news changes your prayer life. The way that you talk to God will change if you believe the good news of the gospel. I'm guessing Paul had plenty of time to pray while he was in prison. He writes those letters and he says that I'm praying earnestly with, with you. Paul had plenty. It's no wonder that lots of inmates that find God in their silence and their solitude, it's something that our world does not easily excel in. We're busy, we're anxious, we're tight wound, we're stressed. Paul offers us a way to our fast paced culture to slow things down in prayer. You know, you, you may be in the habit of saying a quick prayer while you're in the car, really quick. You know, you got your McDonald's or whatever, and you got to bless this food to the nourishment of my body type of a thing. Like, say a quick prayer. And I, and I, th- I love that. Say a quick prayer. Say as many quick prayers as you can. But there is something about prayer that causes us to posture ourselves slower than the world around us. We've tried to replace prayer with medication and meditations We've tried to slow down our brains with drinking something or taking something or smoking something. We look for ways to just turn our brain off when we turn our TVs on, right? Paul suggests something else. Instead of turning it off, instead of numbing your brain, why not use it and redirect it higher? Here's what Paul says. Look at at chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Pay attention not only to what he's asking them to do, but how he's asking them to do it. Don't worry about anything. Some of you hate this verse because the last thing you want to hear is don't worry when you're worrying, right? Stop worrying about that, right? But in everything, he gives us a way to redirect. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, a prayer that slows down your life has, has three parts to it. And Paul kind of gives them out there. 
It's, I didn't put these up on the screen or whatever. You're just going to have to remember this. There's three things you can remember. Wayne's going to talk a lot more about prayer next week, um, but I just want to give you this real quickly. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but, but give your request to God. Here's the three parts to a prayer that slows your life down. Thank you, would you please, and I trust you. It's as simple as that. If you, don't know, if you don't know how to pray, if you don't know where to pray, if you don't know how to start, just start with that. Thank you, would you please, I trust you. Thank you. That's looking back. Maybe you're sitting in front of a meal. Maybe you're sitting with a good friend. Maybe you're, maybe you're mourning the loss of a friend where God has come into your life and you see the places where God has, has been there for you and provided for you. A prayer of thanksgiving causes us to stop being myopic and to start see the blessings around us. We used to sing this song in my old church, Count Your Many Blessings. You guys know this song? Right? We're not going to sing it because I'm not Wayne. But he might sing it. He might chime in. So count your many blessings. It was name them one by one. There's a part in the song where it's like, name them one by one. And you just hold that note out. Everybody falls asleep. And then everybody pops back in. And it was like, there's a, there's a verse in that, there's a part in that song where it says, it may surprise you what the Lord has done. I've got a challenge for you this week. You sit down with any size piece of paper and try to fill it with the blessings of God on your life. I guarantee you'll need another piece of paper. When you sit down and purposefully try to say, God, thank you. Slow down and say thanks to God. Name your blessings one by one. It'll surprise you. That gives us some perspective. It it reframes the things around our life. Next, would you please? Would you please? Paul says, present your request to God. This one, I think, comes most naturally to us. This is what we think of when we pray the most, right? Present your request. This is that one where we're like, break glass in case of emergency on the most. Like we say, all we can do now is pray. Like it's in the Lord's hands now. God, God, I don't ask for much. You know, the movie prayer was just like, if there's somebody up there, angels in the outfield, right? I don't know if this is a real thing. People say I should pray about this. So here you go. And we kind of, we kind of apologize before we even ask God to take our anxieties. Look at what first Peter chapter five verse seven says, cast your cares on him because he cares about you. You know how I show my kids that I love them. I listen to that story for the 500th time, right? You've all been, the parents have been there, right? I listen. I intently care. How do I care for my kids? I listen again. Oh, you're asking for that same thing again. I'm going to listen. I might say no. (laughs) I might say not now. I might say yes, but I'm going to listen. Cast your cares on him. You don't have to self-deprecate with God. God, I know I don't pray enough. God's not looking for an apology when you pray. He's looking for honest prayers. God, I've, I've tried to carry this on my own. I know that you care. You've told me in your word that you care. Here's my worry. Here's my doubt. Here's my questions. Here's my rants. Here's my desire. Here's my faults. Would you please? Would you please? I love the word that Peter uses there for cast, cast your doubts on him. It makes me think that you're just throwing a grenade that you've already pulled the pin on, right? Like cast your doubts on him, cast your cares on him. You've got something that you don't want to hold for much longer, cast it on God. And here's, here's what I love about this is uh, cast your worries and anxieties on him. Let him handle it. Here's what we like to do is cast our anxieties on us. And then we pick up another grenade, right? We're just like, here you go, God, take that one. I got 12 more problems that, uh, that I'm going to need to just hold on to for a little bit longer, right? Peter's saying, cast your anxieties on him, all of them. 
And what you're saying is that third part of the prayer. Thank you, would you please, and I trust you. I trust you. Paul says that even if you don't get the answer that you want, you get something that can answer all of your prayers. And this may seem like a cop-out. Some of you have heard this before. People are just like, I'm just not getting the answer I want. And they'll say, but the peace that passes all understanding, right? And that seems like such a, oh, I don't want that. Like, I wanted an answer, God. I didn't want the peace, but the peace of God is the answer. You're no longer holding the grenade. (laughs) The peace of God will surpass all understanding. I had a mentor that used to call it stupid peace. Like, you just threw a grenade at God. And you're, you feel good about that? Yeah. I've casted my cares. And look at what, look at what Paul says. Will surpass all understanding. The, the peace of God, which will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. If anyone ever tells you that God is not interested in your mental health, show them this verse. That God is guarding my heart, my feelings, the the depths of who I am in my spirit, but he's also wants to guard my mind and all of the ways that the devil wants to infiltrate and lie and deceit. All of that God will guard. And so when I give God my prayers, the answer that I get, the only answer that I need really is that I no longer have to hold these. A communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscience. Some of you know of Dr. Caroline Leaf. She says this, it's been found that 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight-week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. This type of prayer increases activity in the brain, areas associated with social interaction, compassion, sensitivity to others. It also increases frontal lobe activity and focus and intentionality increase. If you're feeling sorry for yourself, if you're going down the twisty slide, thank you, would you please, and I trust you. Prayer is not just reporting what's bothering you to God. It's casting those cares on God. See, when we just go to God and report the news, we're just like, oh, I'm real worried about this. And then we go on worrying about it. What's the point of prayer? Like you can get a friend for that, right? Like you can tell them all of your worries and anxieties. They'd be like, "Ah, I'm sorry, you're going through that. And then you're still left holding the grenade, right? Unload it. Like dropping off the kids at grandma's house for the weekend with barely enough clothes, one shoe and a blanket saying, I trust you, right? I trust you. They're yours now. Thank you. Would you please, I trust you. Prayer slows your world down. The next thing that Paul encourages the Philippian church with is that good news comes from good places. Good news comes from good places. I was reading an NPR article this week that was talking about social media and the shift that came in social media algorithms around 2015. You see, it used to be when you got onto your social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or X or Instagram or whatever it was, like you would just see the stuff that you followed, right? You just jump on there and you'd be like, I've got a few friends and I'll just look through their stuff and then I'm done with Facebook, right? Thank you for showing me your cat. Appreciate that. I don't care what you had for dinner. Thank you. Logging off. Well, social media companies don't want you to just look at a couple cats and then log off, right? They want you there for a long time because they're selling ads for the amount of time that your eyes are on that screen. And so in 2015, they shifted this idea to where they were going to start pushing you things that you wanted to see. And when I say wanted to see, it wasn't necessarily things that you would like. 
something in your brain goes, they actually found out that you will actually engage and comment with something longer that you don't agree with than something that you do agree with, right? How many angry Twitter comments? You're like, oh, I've got to set them straight, right? It's my first day on the internet. I'm going to tell everybody wrong, right? I've got every, I've got every answer. And so it's common. You will stay on there longer with stuff that you don't want to engage with. And, and, and because, you know, they've, it's not just the stuff that you've been posted. So they started adjusting these. Social media is actually doing the cognitive, the cognitive connecting for you. They're doing the shortcuts, the mental shortcuts. Have you noticed a change? I know for me, over the last, I don't know, say seven, eight years, I've noticed a difference in the relationship I have with my devices, my phone. Actually, one thing that I've stopped doing is carrying my phone out here on stage in my back pocket or sitting up here. I used to like to have the clock because that's just my watch now, right? Well, I got a watch. The funny thing was, is I was talking about this in the first service and my watch started vibrating. I was like, oh, I wonder what that is because I don't want to be distracted by my phone, but now my watch is telling me what's going on on my phone. So still a lot to learn here. So, but here's the weird thing. Over the last seven, eight years, I realized that my relationship has changed with my device. I bought the device. I pay the bill for the device. I load the apps and the software in. But for some reason, when I sit down and start scrolling, I don't feel like I'm in control. Anybody else feel that? Yeah, I know. I mean, I know this isn't like an issue for all of you because I've tried to text some of you and it's like, can't text the landline or whatever. I'm not sure what you guys got going on there. But uh, I know it's generational, but maybe, you know, like I, I picked up this device to convert teaspoons to tablespoons. And now I'm watching world series highlights. Like how did we get here from this to this, right? How on earth? And maybe for you, it's not your, it's not your phone, but the average person does spend 5.4 hours a day on their phones. And I've done it without even noticing, you know, my phone will be like, you spent more time on your phone last week than you did the week before. And I was like, thanks. Like, is that a pat on the back or like, are you shaming me? So now my phone is contributing to my shame, more counseling. I don't know, whatever. One habit that I've uh, adopted is to parent my phone. I stole that. I stole that phrase from John Mark Comer, um, but parenting my phone, just like you, if you got kids in your house, you parent your kids, hopefully. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I would view my phone as a dependent, right? I'm paying the bill right? I'm loading the apps. I'm controlling how much time I'm setting. So, so I've even gotten real weird about it. Like I, um, I drilled a hole in the back of my nightstand so that I could run the charger through and like put my phone actually in its own little bed at night. Right. Just to remind my phone who's in charge. Right. I know I'm crazy. I'm a crazy person talking to my phone. Right. Just to remind my phone. It's like that, that captain Phillips movie. I'm the captain now. Right. You don't get to tell me when you turn on and turn off. Like I'm putting you to bed, just like your kids. They never get out of bed, on, you know, when, whenever you put them to bed, right? So I put it in the drawer and I close the drawer. I'm controlling it. And maybe for you, it's not a smartphone issue. Maybe it's your TV or the channel that you watch or video games. Or I spent a couple hours on Facebook Marketplace the other day and I needed nothing, Right. I was just scrolling. My wife looked over and she was like, why are you looking at cars? We don't need a car. And I was like, I was there. Like, I have no idea. I was like, do we need a car? I think we might need a car. So, but I wasn't, you know, I was telling myself, like, I'm not scrolling Facebook. I'm on Facebook marketplace, right? Which may be more dangerous to the budget, but so maybe for you, whatever it is, whatever your preferred news channel, your favorite team, just ask yourself, am I the captain of this in my life or am I just a passenger? 
Does this thing get to tell me when I get to wake up? Does this thing tell me where I'm going, what I'm thinking, the way that I'm filtering the world? Or am I just, am I along for the ride or am I in charge? Does my mood rise and fall based on what happens here? Am I a better person, a better follower of Jesus, a better father, a better husband? Because this is in my life. None of these things are evil, but they can be used for evil. They have a tendency to be idolized in our society. Like if you walk around this world without a smartphone, people will think you're not a smart person, right? You're like, why are we asking questions and not knowing the answers? We have smartphones, right? But here's Paul's criteria for him. Good news comes from good places. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. I haven't looked, but I guarantee none of those words show up in the mission statement of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. This is the formula for followers of Christ, for those who want to reframe into a real reality. How can Paul, after all he's been through, be so joyful? How can he do it? He focuses on these types of things. This is more than just the power of positive thinking. It's understanding that good news comes from good places. It's that old adage, garbage in, garbage out, right? These are just a few of the things, but this is the new frame. You can't avoid hearing lies, but you can make sure that they're framed properly. Don't miss this. Paul says to dwell on these things. Just look at the list that's on the screen right now. He says to dwell on these things. I feel like the word dwell, is not a word that we use very often. And when we use it, we use it like a relaxing thing. Like you want to like dwell in a hammock, right? Or on a cruise ship, right? I'm just dwelling. Like I'm floating like a, you know, like an angel or something. The word there is actually more accurately translated practice. And Paul says, dwell on these things. It's, it's what they call a, an active imperative verb, which is a command from Paul. Practice these things. You want to live like Jesus? Here's some practices of Jesus. Focus on what's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, moral excellence, and praiseworthy. If it doesn't make that list, then we've got to have a conversation. We need to think about reframing. This is the new frame. Reframing the lies of the enemy to pursue the truth. Reframing the desires of my flesh to pursue purity. Reframing the evils of the world to pursue honor and praiseworthy things. Good news comes from good places. The last thing that Paul reminds him, it's kind of how he wraps up the book, is that good news changes your perspective. The good news changes your perspective. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've, you've heard the gospel and it's done something in your heart, your perspective on the world will be different. We were driving in the car the other day and I got the two kids in the back. I got nine and four years old and they're very observant. They're looking out the windows. They're very possessive of their windows. Like, don't look out my window. Don't cross us. That sort of thing. And I look out the front windshield and I see it's one of those, those beautiful days where like clear blue sky, but you can see the moon in the middle of the day. You guys have ever seen one of those days. It was like, you can see the moon super clear up in the sky. And I was like, guys, look, you can see the moon. And one of them said, I can see the moon. And the other one said, I don't see the moon. I was like, just a second. So we, we turn, you know, into a parking lot where I want to see the moon. Everybody's looking at the moon. It's really cool. And they were like, why can you see the moon during the day? I was like, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Um, I didn't say it that loud. Uh, I just wanted you to see how cool this was, right? So we're driving along the rest of the day, and then one of them pipes up from the back seat. Dad, the moon is gone. 
<laughs> I was like, slam on the brakes. The moon is gone. And the other one's like, no, I can still see it. And this turned into, this totally didn't turn into any kind of argument or whatever. I put it in my notes here so I could, you could believe it. Calmly and quietly with an impeccable debating and reasoning skills, my kids figured out <laughs> that it was all about the perspective, right? We had just turned a corner and one of them couldn't see the moon. The other one could see the moon just because of the direction we were going. And it was going to change here a little bit. You'd be able to see the moon again. You see, perspective matters. I'm looking out the front windshield of the car, right? I can see so much more than them. And they're just looking out their little side windows, their perspective. And so this reminds us, perspective changes. Perspective matters. Look at what Paul says in in verse 12. This is his perspective on his life. This is his manifesto of reframing. I know how to make to do. I know how to make do with little. And I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances I've learned the secret of being content whether well fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. He's like, thank you so much for continuing to give. I didn't need that because I have learned the secret to contentment. It's not just positive thinking. It's not reframing things so that just they're like, ah, oh, I won't worry about that. I'll just bury my feelings down deep. No, he is reframed. And these verses that are usually slapped on coffee mugs or on the walls of Christian high school weight rooms, it's not really about lifting weights when you say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's saying that I can look at the circumstances of my world no matter what it is. I can look at the grenades that I'm holding in my hand. I can look out the front windshield of the car and I can see the perspective that I may not be headed towards something amazing, that I may, be, I may be having the worst day of my life. I may be sitting on the current river, which is one of the most beautiful places in the earth, but it's raining and I can't see down the river. I may be in a bad circumstance, but I've learned to be content in all things. Paul says, in all things, because Christ gives me the strength strength to reframe. He's reframing every crack of the whip that he's taken, every rod he's taken across his back, every rock that was thrown with intent to kill him. He's reframing every time that he felt that ship run aground. He's like, here we go again. Really? Three times, Paul? Like you're going to get on another ship? Every time he was hungry, every time he was thirsty, he's reframing all of his experiences. But notice he's not just reframing the good, but also the bad. He's reframing both. He's looking at his whole life. His perspective changed because his goal is no longer comfort. His goal is no longer uh, retirement. His goal is no longer, um, I hope that I'm famous. Paul's goal is not comfort, but it's the gospel. It's the spread of the good news. The gospel reframes everything. You know, I don't usually, I don't usually think about this, but as I was studying for this message this week, I started to think, you know, we, we like to think of Paul writing to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he's a man just going out on top. Like he's like, I've got everything I've ever wanted, but I can't help but think he might've been disappointed once he got to Rome. That was Paul's goal to get to Rome. If all roads lead to, lead to Rome, that means they all lead from Rome. So Paul wants to preach the gospel in the center of culture and life and everything. So if Paul can make it to Rome, The problem was, is the way that Paul made it to Rome was he just kept getting arrested. And every time he he would get arrested and he was in trial, they would be like, they would be like, well, what do you want to do from here, Paul? Because you're a Roman citizen. You've got some rights. He's like, I appeal to Caesar. So he's going to go preach to Caesar. He's going to go to Rome. They finally get him to Rome. They they chain him to a guard. If you got to think, think of the highest pinnacle of what a preacher would want to do in Rome. You've seen pictures of the Colosseum, right? 
I can just imagine, can you imagine that standing in the middle of the Colosseum, 50 to 75,000 people? Like this is Super Bowl level crusade, Billy Graham type stuff, right? This is standing in the middle of the Colosseum, preaching the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people. While Nero's probably sitting up there in his box seat as well, listening to it. This is Paul's goal, that the whole world would know the gospel. But as Paul writes Philippians, that's not what's happening. He's not on the stage as a celebrity preacher, but he's in a cell awaiting at a trial, actually a trial that we're not even sure if it happens. If you think about it, he's like, I appeal to Caesar. Man, everybody's going everybody's to watch this trial on TV in the ages. Like, this will be a tape they want to see. They'll know that I convinced Nero, one of the most evil person to ever live on the face of the earth. We don't even know if that trial actually happened. For all we know, Paul died under house arrest while waiting for this trial. So Paul writes Philippians, but it's not a letter of regret. You know he had to have them, but it's a letter of reframing. Sure, he's not likely to preach to Nero, but one of his top guards, any of his top guards, like, can you imagine how annoying it was? You're just like, can I just get a lunch break and get unchained from this guy? Like, like, please don't baptize me with these handcuffs on. Like, he's literally chained to a guard. And there's, you know, all of, the, all of these guards, like all of the praetorian guard is what the scripture says, that they would learn the gospel. Sure, he's not likely to visit these churches again. He's writing all of these letters and he planted these churches. He loves these churches and he's encouraging them. He's not going to get to see them again. But he sends the likes of Epaphroditus, Timothy and Phoebe and Titus with all of these letters to all of these churches. Letters that we sit here 2,000 years later reading his encouragements, his instructions, his commands. Paul doesn't get to preach in the Colosseum to thousands, but his impact reaches millions. It's reframing. Why can Paul say rejoice in all things? Why can Paul say what has happened to me has spread the gospel? Because it actually has. Notice how Paul ends his letter in verse 22. You can almost see him kind of crack a smile when he goes, all the saints send you greetings, especially those in Caesar's household. Isn't it ironic that Paul, after all he's been through, after everything that has brought him to this moment, no matter what his goals were, God's purposes are still being played out. Much like Joseph said back in the Old Testament, Paul sees that the enemy's intended imprisonment was for evil, but it's turned to the spread of the good news into the upper echelon of the Roman Empire. Good news changes your perspective. So whether life throws you 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife or it's something much bigger than that, like more more serious, like a life-changing diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, the crisis of faith, let the God of good news comfort you. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. So this week, we're going to ask you to do two things. We're going to ask you to memorize Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul makes that admission that everything that has happened to me, I want you to pray this. Everything that has happened to me has caused for the the sake of the gospel. And then if you'll check out the resources on the website, there's there's a, there's a, a little bit of questionnaire. I say questionnaire, that sounds like a job interview or whatever. It's three questions. There's three questions you can look around your life and you can start to see these questions of like, how am I reframe? How am I framing things? What are my biases that I'm bringing to the difficulties that are happening in my life? 
Make these a part of your prayer time and your quiet time this week to, to reframe the way that we look at the world, to see that God is good and he's doing good things in our lives. If, if you would like to pray this morning, if you'd like help taking and casting those cares, we've got our prayer team. They'll kind of flank the sides over here. And uh, if you just want to step out during this last song and pray with one of them, I'm also going to be in our decision point over here. If you want to take that next step further, what does it look like to, uh, what does it look like to, to walk in faith with Jesus? What does it look like to have a different perspective from all around, to look out the front windshield and to be able to see what God is doing panoramically? I'd love to talk with you this morning. And so church, as we stand this morning, as we sing, if you have a, a prayer to be prayed or a decision to be made, I'd love to talk with you out here as we give it over to the band. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.